Good afternoon and happy rainy and windy Monday to you. We will keep you up to date throughout the program today. BC Hydro making great work when it comes to restoring power, but still many parts of the province that could get hit by that storm. And uh, as I mentioned, we'll keep you up to date where uh, the storm is landing. We are expecting it to to get a little bit windier when we're talking about uh, North Vancouver, parts of the Sunshine Coast as well. So keep it locked here. We'll have all of the very latest on that. We're also going to be talking a bit more about a new report out from CIBC. No huge surprise that we are seeing an increase in the number of parents that are giving their adult children a little financial help when it comes to getting into home ownership and getting that down payment. You might be surprised though at just how much money parents are giving their adult children in this country. We're going to check in with the Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets, uh, co-author of this new report that looks exactly at that. Right now, though, we are taking a look at what's happening off the coast of Victoria. That is where a container ship continues to smolder. We heard this weekend from Coast Guard as well as members of the Coldwater Marine Rescue as far as what is happening on that ship and what the very latest is. Current field observations are seeing a reduction in both smoke and open flame on board the vessel. Environment Climate Change Canada is providing command with drift modeling of lost cargo on the West Coast and plume modeling in regards to the cargo fire on board Zim Kingston. So that's Paul Barrett with the Canadian Coast Guard. The Coast Guard just shared on social media a few moments ago that they are working to track the movement of the containers, those that fell off that vessel, saying that they are 12 nautical miles east of Vancouver Island, and they don't believe those containers are going to come ashore, but they do have an emergency number, a 1-800 number for people to call if that does happen. Right now, though, we are joined by Robert Lewis Manning, the CEO of the BC Chamber of Shipping. Thank you so much. So much for joining us to talk more about this. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we saw unfold this weekend and what's happening now? Well, I think uh, any fire is extremely scary on board a ship, and uh, it would have been uh, for the crew, the captain and crew of this ship, um, absolutely a heroic response to the fire, uh, both by the crew and uh, the supports that have been contracted commercially to provide support. And I think you're aware uh, there's been a C-SPAN tug-on station and two Maersk offshore supply vessels providing uh, cooling uh, water to the fire. So that, that's been very successful. And uh, the command and control that's been led largely by the Canadian Coast Guard has, has done a good job of doing all the supporting functions. So from a response from a response. Uh, perspective. Um, it's been a great response. Um, the weather now is the, the piece that's hampering the next steps. Uh, and that's what the storm uh, and the, the high winds and rain hampering the area? Uh, absolutely. So there's, uh, there is a contracted salvage company that's trying to get on board the ship. And at the moment, the weather is uh, precluding that. And also, um, you can imagine that uh, everybody involved, and especially the crew on board the ship, and the crews that are supporting from those other vessels are getting pretty tired. So sustaining and getting people changed out is going to be uh, important in the next uh, 24 hours. And obviously the weather's uh, not supporting doing that. I think uh, also talking to your lead in about uh, those containers, obviously the weather isn't supporting that effort right now too. And uh, as time progresses, um, those containers continue to drift and it, it's probably going to be quite challenging to find them and track them and then uh, commence the salvage, which is all all 
uh, ready to go. Uh, and the, the Coast Guard, as mentioned, they did put that information out there saying that they don't think that they will come ashore, but that could change. Uh, they also said that two of the containers that f- have fallen off that ship contain chemicals that are hazardous to human health. So how concerned should we be that, that those are, are now floating in the water and there is that possibility that they could come ashore? Well, I think uh, anytime something goes in the ocean that's not supposed to be there, um, there has to be concern and attention to that. Um, a little bit of uh, support in so much as those chemicals have to be stored in a specific way according to international regulations. So hopefully that storage uh, containment system has not been um, affected by those containers falling off the ship, and it's going to take some time to f- to find those containers. Um, as far as concern of them uh, coming ashore, I think obviously they, um, if they do, at least they'll be known where they are and the resources will be put to them to recover them safely. Um, but identifying them, finding them is the key part right now over the next uh, 48 hours. And it's going to be challenging with these conditions until the storm abates a bit. And we know as far as how this kind of unfolded that the ship reported that there was some damage as it approached Vancouver. It anchored to try and get those repairs done. And then the the fire was reported. How rare is something like this uh, to see like something like this unfold on a container ship? Well, I think the loss and then the uh, subsequent fire is fairly rare. Um, I can think in the last two years of three instances globally where containers have fallen off uh, a ship, um, usually in a significant weather event. Um, so it is rare compared to the amount of cargo that's moving globally. Uh, but happening it, it happening once is one too many times. And uh, I think we'll have to reflect on this once the initial actions are taken and see what can be done in the future to um, avoid these types of situations, especially close to our shores. Uh, and the ship as well, people will now recognize the name, the Zim Kingston. It's a Greek-based ship. So what does that mean as far as when we do start, when we get past this kind of recovery part, making sure that the containers are recovered and that fire is no longer smoldering? Uh, are there any kinds of repercussions or what happens as far as finding out how this happened? And could the company, could the, the, the um, company that owns the ship, could they face any kind of penalties? Um, Well, I don't want to speculate too much. There has to be an investigation, and the Transport Safety Board will leave that investigation. And depending on on what they uh, determine, uh, there could be subsequent uh, administrative or even greater uh, penalties. But uh, that's really, really speculative at this point. Um, The entire commercial response that, that we've witnessed just off the shores of Victoria have been contracted by the ship owner and the operator, who are two different companies. Um, and also the salvage efforts for those containers. So everything is happening the way it's supposed to happen. Uh, And at the moment, I think that's where the the focus is. Um, But I imagine as soon as the fire is completely extinguished, um, Canadian government officials will be on board that ship inspecting it and likely conducting an investigation. And Robert, just to clarify something you mentioned earlier, because I think when people hear the words that, that in uh, some of the containers that fell, there were, were chemicals that were could be hazardous to humans, as well as those that were burning on the ship, that they also, uh, there are some hazardous materials. Uh, people will be concerned about that and wonder, 
is that going to impact the air quality or should we be concerned about that being in, in the waters? But you mentioned that anytime a container ship has those types of materials, there are checks and balances as far as how they are transported. So what would you say to people who hear that and are concerned about the perhaps the, um, the hazardous materials and those getting into the environment? Well, specifically with the incident that's uh, occurring right now, um, Environment and Climate Change Canada is monitoring um, the air quality in the vicinity of Victoria to ensure that the levels are safe uh, for people. And uh, so far, I believe that is the case. And uh, as far as normal transportation is is concerned, yes, um, there are um, safety codes that have to be met for all uh, dangerous goods that are transported by ships. And uh, those are monitored carefully and checked by Port State Control Authority, which is the responsibility of Transport Canada. Will this have any impact, do you think? I know the last time we talked to you on the program, which wasn't that long ago, we were talking about uh, the supply chain and some of the issues with that as we get closer to the holiday season. Will this have any impact as far as I know it's just one ship that we're dealing with in this, but will that have delays or will there be any kind of domino effect you can imagine? Well, from a global perspective, no. Um, Obviously, everything that's on board that ship um, is going to be delayed in getting to its final destination. Uh, So there will be some sort of impact. As far as a larger impact on the Canadian and North American supply chain, this will not have an impact. Um, The ports, and especially here in the lower mainland, are operating at at their capacity, which is 24 hours a day. So, um, no, this incident won't have a a larger effect on, on the operation of the ports in British Columbia. All right. Robert Lewis Manning, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jim. Well, we are learning a few more details about what happened that led to last week's shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. It involved a prop revolver, and as you know, it happened during the filming of the Alec Baldwin Western Rust. It has the screen industry now looking at the future of gun use on sets. Industry safety standards ban live ammunition from movie sets. Instead, many sets will use blank cartridges, which still have gunpowder, to simulate the sound and smoke but no bullet. As armor, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed was responsible for preparing those prop guns. A rust actor telling ABC News Gutierrez-Reed was always very professional on set and took her job seriously. But a member of the camera crew describes a set rife with safety concerns. The production company behind that film, which has been paused, says it is now conducting an internal review. Well, let's bring on Daniel Levinson. He is the owner of Rapier Wit in Toronto and has a lot of experience with being on film sets. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, I know you've been you've been performing, you direct, you teach stage combat professionally. What went through your mind when you learned about this story? Well, my heart just sunk. I mean, sadly, this is not the first uh, event that we know of. And it always shocks me every time I hear it because it seems so unnecessary and, uh, and surprising because there are uh, really intelligent uh, structures in place to protect uh, crew members, performers, and in the case of live performance, audience uh, from such things. And when I hear these events occur, I just... I just... Um, I don't have words because it seems mind-boggling to me that it happens. 
How could this happen? And I think that's one of the big questions people have is when we're talking about a prop gun, why is there even or how is there even an opportunity that live rounds are in that gun? Well, uh, let me speak about uh, from our position in Canada. It simply couldn't happen. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a very broad statement, but the license I have that allows me to use firearms in theater and film precludes me from having live ammunition, meaning um, the difference between, of course, live ammunition and blanks is, is really the projectile. And so I, I cannot imagine ever having a reason for live ammunition uh, on set and, or, or even having it in your possession. And unlike some of the stories we've been hearing, and again, I, I should be cautious because I can only speak to what I've read, uh, as you have or, or heard from, from the press, um, that the idea of having live ammunition in these firearms to to practice with uh, between filming is just something we would not do. No, something we wouldn't do in Canada? No. Right. Uh, because even that, I think, seems uh, seems so strange that that that's even something that would be done on a film set, that using prop guns for that kind of thing in between takes or in some downtime, just, I, I think, and again, looking at it through that Canadian lens just seems so odd. Absolutely. And and I have a number of friends who uh, across the United States who, who work in the industry, and it really is very different between state to state. And even though the provinces may have um, differences in how certain things we, we approach, the, the criminal laws are all the same, the farm laws are all the same, and uh, anyone I know who works in the industry in Canada uh, really approaches it in the same way of safety that, that we feel um, would preclude such an event from happening. Would a prop gun in Canada still be capable of firing live rounds, or is something, can something be done to those guns that stops them from even being used in that way? Well, the, the, the firearm that I understand was used in this, in this particular example was a revolver. And to, uh, to make the firearm work, you wouldn't actually have to change it for firing blanks. The reason why I bring that up is in the case of more modern firearms, self-loading uh, pistols, things have to be done to allow them to cycle so that you can fire around and have the spent brass thrown out and the next blank to go in. So those have to be altered to allow you to use them. And then, of course, there's also um, blank replicas that are made only to fire blanks and wouldn't be able to allow someone to put a round in. The issue that I think some people come about with things that um, are real firearms that haven't been altered is a fear of altering might in some way uh, weaken or, or damage the metallurgy of the firearm. Now, this is people have different feelings about this, but that's one of the things that might be a concern. And so... The rules that keep people safe about never, never pointing the firearm at, at, at a human being or, or at an object that you uh, uh, don't wish to hit, like if you were firing target, uh, target shooting with real rounds at a target, uh, you know, that, that's something else entirely. But on set, the, the safeties we would go through if using a real firearm that has not been altered would be, one, you wouldn't point it at someone. And you have to remember also that revolvers there's space around the cylinder and there's actually hot gases that come out as opposed to a modern pistol. So you have to have an awareness of all of that area, not just the end of the muzzle. And because of it, uh, there's really strict rules about distancing between people, uh, the locations of crew and, and cast and, and just the, 
the let's use the word trickery we can use with camera to allow us to have a very impactful image and yet still keep people safe. Right. And, and oh, sorry, know, go ahead. And I was going to say, so a lot of people questioning why we're using real firearms at all. Um, part of it is that, yes, there are uh, replicas out there. The issue is what do we want them to do? So, for instance, I have some solid rubber replicas that are terrific for uh, only pointing or dropping, and they can't do a thing. But if the action demands an actor cycle or create the illusion that they're loading or unloading the firearm or cocking the hammer, then obviously we need something else. And there are airsoft uh, uh, or replica firearms that do not fire that you can use. But again, and speaking because I also work in theater, the the impact on an audience when used properly, where the sound and, and the texture and, and even the smell of the, the, the blank can alter the environment of the room. And, and if that's what you're looking for, it might be appropriate to use a blank gun. So the answer I would say is um, using the proper uh, tool for the job. And I would only use blank firing uh, uh, firearms if that was exactly what was needed, if it was just a question of something in the hand of an actor, there's other choices. Right. And I think that's, too, one of the questions that has come up. And I was looking at it, for wondering, because so I have my gun license and mm-hmm. I guess I come to it from that perspective in that I would never assume a gun is unloaded. The One of the first rules you learn is that you always check and you make sure. And I was curious if when using real firearms on movie sets, if there are those same rules, if any of the same rules as as just kind of regular gun ownership, if they come into play. We certainly start from the same place you went went through to get your, your PAL. And uh, if I was lucky enough to work with you on a set, what I would do uh, before the event was I would show you the firearm and I would open it if it was a revolver or I would show you if it was a pistol or a rifle, whatever. I'd open the action and allow you to see either that it was empty because there wasn't supposed to be anything in it or uh, the number of blanks in it because you're in a, in a, in a scene where you're actually going to be firing. But I would take that time. And, and I'm pleased to say that I've never been on a set where I wasn't allowed that time to, to make sure that everyone was aware and, and that this was, the, this was the safety step we were going to take. Another thing would be that I wouldn't load a firearm and just place it on a table and then walk away from it. Um, the idea of once, putting, once you put the blank inside the firearm, you're really responsible for it. And that's where it would go from my hand to the performer's hand. I think that would be perhaps the strangest thing for people who uh, use firearm for sport or for hunting, that really the thought of giving someone a loaded firearm goes against nature. But because of how filming works, and and sadly many performers don't have much firearm training, um, the placement of a gun into someone's hand uh, in a very controlled way happens all the time on a set. But the uh, well, I should say not, not but, but in my ideal world, I would have actors training, as you did to get your pal, for no other reason than to give them a, a really healthy respect and understanding of what firearms are and how dangerous they are. 
Yeah, and I think that's certainly one of the questions out there. Do you think this will lead uh, to changes? I know one uh, one um, production company, I think it was The Rookie, sent out a letter saying they're now changing their policy when it comes to having prop weapons and how that, that's done on set. Uh, others, I know there are others on the, the set of Rust saying that they believe that this was negligence and this could have easily been prevented. Do you think it will lead to policy changes or should? Uh, I think it may. The, the problem with should, I guess, and this may make me uh, out of step with some people, is that I believe in giving uh, artists the most tool, the, the, the most amount of tools to achieve the desired end. And so earlier I said the appropriate prop for the appropriate event. We also do a great deal of sword work. And, and so I have swords made of steel and swords made of aluminum and swords made of rubber. And they do different things for different tasks. And there's a a performance quality that firing a blank may give a performer that, uh, and people may argue with me about this, that would be perhaps uh, a greater sense of urgency and believability. If it's unnecessary, then people won't. Uh, I think that to sum it all up, my, my fear is always to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And there are times, particularly with historical firearms where it's really difficult to find the object people seek because there, there are no alternatives except for either real or solid rubber uh, replicas. And you can imagine that if you are watching a, a you know, war horse and you're watching the actor uh, move the action, it's likely going to be a real firearm. Right. Okay. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your expertise today and talking more about this. A very important conversation to have. Thank you so much for joining us. A great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, according to some U.S. news outlets, uh, there is an update in looking at what happened on the set of the movie Rust. And uh, according to several sources talking to the U.S. news outlets, the assistant director on that movie who handed a gun to Alec Baldwin before that fatal shooting was apparently previously fired from another film production after a gun incident injured a crew member. That is according to the movie's production company. And that production company apparently telling this piece of news to CNN. So more updates coming on this as the investigation continues and more information coming as well on how things unfolded that day. Let's talk a bit more with this on this now with Paul Zyke, retired police commander, more than 30 years of law enforcement experience, also a SAG eligible actor who has appeared in movies and various Discovery Channel productions. Paul, thank Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. As we're learning more about how things unfolded that day that ended in this tragic death of the cinematographer, what is your response, given the experience you have on film sets and with crews, what is your response to what happened? Well, obviously one of complete and utter tragedy. Um, You know, anybody that goes to work expects to come home. And in this situation, you had a, um, one person that went to work and, and never, never returned, never made it back. Um, you know, and then you also have a very unfortunate event where you've got a, a whole cast of crew members that are traumatized uh, upon seeing something like that happening. I mean, that's a, a horrendous blow to somebody's family, um, to the movie industry, to all the families uh, of the loved ones that were there. As they were, I'm sure, very concerned for their loved ones. 
Um, and, and finally, it's something that I, you just don't expect that to have happen. Um, in the movie productions that I've been involved in, um, you know, speaking directly to, say, Terminator Salvation, you know, there was dozens and dozens of live fire uh, scenes that I participated in uh, through two weeks of, of filming in the middle of the night. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, fully automatic machine gun fire type of situations with blanks. And um, the physical control over those weapons was very tight. Those weapons were handed to you. The magazines fully loaded with blanks were handed to you. And you would then proceed as a group to the area in which you were going to shoot your scene. You know, once uh, the scene played out and, you know, all the, uh, the, the action was over, you know, eight, ten minutes worth, um, the explosions, the you know motorcycle jumps, whatever it was, plus all the gunfire, you'd then walk back and you'd secure that the your weapon immediately with the same person that issued it to you, usually an armorer, um, and they would also take your magazines back from you. They would check the weapons, clear them, and get them ready for the next scene. Um, you, you know, you didn't leave leave offset with them. You didn't go to the bathroom with them. You know, next to you, you didn't just hang out with them. You went to the to the scene and back from the scene and and this this type of protocol is is usually enough um and making sure that people aren't bringing live ammunition to the scene in general which oftentimes the actors are searched to make sure they don't have live ammunition on them it's it's really the same thing in law enforcement training anytime that we are doing scenarios or we are engaged in um some sort of um uh, reality-based training we're, we're utilizing weapons that um, has been checked, triple checked. You go out to your car, you come back, you get checked again for live ammunition. The bottom line is you cannot have live ammunition uh, in an environment that is intended to to be blanks only. And it's it's the you know the world of Hollywood. And when you do that, you cross a line, and and very unfortunately, the unthinkable happens to somebody almost every day. And we saw that play out here uh, on the set. Why would people be bringing actors or people who aren't the armorers or anybody on a set? Why would they be bringing live ammunition onto the set? There's no good reason for that whatsoever is simply the answer. The only people that should be armed with weapons uh, that have ammunition in them that is live would be security staff that have been hired to secure the movie uh, set or the scene. And, you know, that often is there. You'll have sometimes armed security, sometimes unarmed security. It depends on what they want and what they ask for. That aside, there should be absolutely no live ammunition whatsoever on the, on the set at all because it's, it's not germane to what is taking place. You, you are handling weapons. Um, you, you're in shootout scenes. You're, you're in things where live ammunition is only a, um, a recipe for disaster, not to mention you know, blanks, if you load them in the dark and you're, you know, you're not paying attention to what you're doing, um, some of them can appear as live, live ammunition. Um, certainly, you know, every step should be taken to make sure you're not loading, you know, live ammunition into a magazine or into a, a revolver or in any type of, of firearm, because this is what I think a part of the problem is. You know, we call these prop guns, but they're not a prop. Uh, it's a gun that is that is capable of firing live bullets. That's a, that's simply a deadly weapon. It's a firearm that is being used as a prop. And I think when we continuously use the wrong language when we're describing things, I think you know bad things happen. And in the world of 
uh, threat mitigation and workplace violence, which which I'm an expert in, um, you know, one of the things I'm always fighting for is let's call things what they are. You know, uh, if a situation's dangerous, don't just call it da- dangerous, call it lethal. Um, you know, call call it what it is. If it's if it's high in lethality, then say that. Don't just say, well, it's kind of dangerous or we got a weird feeling about this. People don't respond well to that. And I think the word prop gun is lackadaisical. It makes us think, oh, okay, this is just the toy. This is just something that could not possibly hurt us. Well, a prop knife, maybe, you know, that's a that's a knife that looks like a knife that has a complete dull edge to it. Now, that's a prop. These are live firearms that are being utilized in the environment and being called props. It's a real paradigm shift in thinking when you start talking about it that way. Yeah, because I think there's that thinking that there is a difference that and I'm even I'm looking at a CNN story right now where it's talking about the two other accidental discharges. But it's even saying there were at least two accidental prop gun discharges on that set prior to the fatal shooting. Yeah, and I think once we get used to as a society using a term, using terminology, regardless if it's if it's providing clarity or not, it just moves forward. I mean, it, it, it's it's a shame because I really do think that the word prop um, it just desensitizes uh, us, anyone involved. If you're not really familiar with firearms and you don't carry them all the time, and you're not ex-military, you're not ex-law enforcement, you may start to look at this or look at some of these weapons as, all right, this is just a tool for the shot. It's just a tool of my trade instead of something capable of killing someone if used in, in, in a manner other than what we're trying to use it. And we're using it as a prop because we want this to look as real as possible. But on the other hand, there's nothing that trumps safety, regardless what workplace that you're in, whether it be uh, you know in an office building or on a movie set, that's still a workplace. Everyone has a reasonable expectation for it to be secure and to come home safely and to not have incidents such as this occur. And unfortunately, in this uh, in this instance, you know, there were some systemic failures that clearly must have led or, or been a chain of events that led to this being allowed to happen because it should have been impossible. And moving forward, my recommendation is is that you make it impossible. You 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 literally make the weapons that are used on set be non-actual firearms. They, they need to be true props. They can look like firearms. They can, they can function like firearms, but they are not capable of firing live rounds. And if we don't do that, if that does not happen, it might be five years from now. It might be 10 years from now. History repeats itself. People forget very soon, very quickly, in a 24-7 news cycle about things like this. And things just roll on. And I say this time, let's not let that happen. Yeah, and I I think, too, there's probably a lot of surprise that that's not already the case. I think there were many people learning about this uh, horrific uh, tragedy that would have just made the assumption that a gun used during a scene on a movie set in 2021 uh, could be disabled from using live ammunitions or or would already have been changed that way. Uh, That wasn't the case, obviously. Can you you explain, though, so the, the role of the 
armorer on a set, if the armorer gives the gun to the actor, whoever it is that that is then doing the scene, is the actor supposed to 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 put full confidence in the armorer that the armorer has checked, and so the actor does not have to double check and make sure he or she is not dealing with a loaded weapon? I mean, that is essentially, you know, in a real world, uh, that's exactly what happens, okay? In a perfect scenario, we would all triple check something every time. We'd go, okay, thank you for checking it. Let me check it again. Let me check it again. All up until the point that you utilize the firearm in a scene. The reality is, is that because there is supposed to be no, and there's no plausible reason for anybody that's handling guns that are going to be used, firearms that are going to be used in an actual scene to be in possession of live ammunition. That's just such a big, horrendous thing. Uh, No-no, if you will. It's just something that does not happen, cannot happen. Um, Yes, the actors are going to have to have some confidence that the individual that handed them the firearm uh, is competent enough to know not to put live ammunition in, in the gun that's going to be used in a scene and aimed at people and fired utilizing blanks. So I don't think any reasonable person at all, any actor or non-actor, would think that somebody would hand them a firearm that in fact had uh, you know, even one live round in it, knowing that it's going to be used in that capacity. Um, it's just, it's, it's not something that, you know, you could go 100 years and not have that happen. You could go two months and have it happen again. That's one of the challenges with these types of situations. And it's really almost the same kind of thing with workplace violence. We'll go, you know, what, six months without a mass shooting event at a, at a workplace, and then it'll be hyped up, and then we'll have another one, and then we'll go maybe two weeks and have another one. Things that are sporadic, but they're very, very important to examine and find out why this happened and do everything that we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again, those things have to have the attention put on them that they need. And unfortunately, like I said, we have a very short attention span when it comes to even horrendous events from occurring. But if we took the approach that that the Federal Aviation Administration takes when an airplane goes down to meticulously pull every part of an airplane out of the bottom of an ocean and put it together in a hangar, even over a two-year span, until, we, until they find out what happened to that plane, until we take that same type of meticulous approach to these type of situations, and even workplace violence situations in general, we will never, ever have the same sort of track record that the aviation industry has, which is one of the safest industries in the entire world. I'm saying we should do that in all we do, not just in, in the aviation industry. All right, Paul Zyke, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. And and one last thing, if if anybody listening supports what I'm saying, please go to at Workplace Threat on Twitter um, and and like and follow me. Um, You know, this is definitely an uphill battle. Um, But together, we can all make a difference. Thank you. Well, this is no huge surprise, but the actual numbers might be a little bit startling. Talking about just how much parents are giving their adult children when they need a little help getting into the housing market. And a new report that was put out by CIBC Economics takes a look at just how much money during the past year has gone from parents to children. And This is a report that's trying to find out the impact 
impact that parental gifts are having on housing markets, housing markets such as the one right here in Metro Vancouver. And joining me to talk more about this is Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist with CIBC Capital Markets. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So how did you get the information or try and get a better idea on the exact numbers of how much money parents are giving to their adult children? Yes, it's not an easy thing to do, as you can imagine. We used actually CIBC data to get a sense of uh, this uh, magnitude uh, of the gifting uh, phenomena, because quite frankly, we always talk about how expensive real estate is, especially, of course, in Vancouver. And the first question people are asking is how people can afford buying this multi-million dollar house. And part of the answer is uh, parents are giving money and the numbers are sometimes unbelievable. So what are the numbers? Well, about 30% of uh, first-time home buyers are getting a gift. Two-thirds of those gifts are the primary source of, um, of the down payment. And then you have another 10% of what we call mover-uppers that get help. So it's not just first-time buyers, it's also mover-uppers. And in Vancouver, for example, the average size of this uh, gift to move up is approaching $300,000. That's a lot of money. That's a big gift. So $300,000, that's being gifted, the average amount being gifted from parents, and that's going to adult children who are already in the housing market. That's correct. That's correct. So they are moving up. They already have a house. They are selling it and they are moving to something bigger. Maybe they are moving from a condo to a detached house. They need a little bit of help and the parents are there. And how different was that? Or did you look at how different that is from, say, first time buyers? Because, I mean, as ridiculous as it sounds, giving $300,000 to even first time buyers in some cases or a lot of cases in the Vancouver market isn't going to be enough for, to be the down payment on what they might be looking for. That's very true. And this trend has been uh, rising uh, now. It's not uh, something that we haven't seen before. If you look at the country as a whole, in Vancouver in particular, the number has been there before in terms of gifting, but it has risen dramatically over the past few years. Uh, and during the pandemic, we've seen the average size of gift rising dramatically. And the question is why? And I think part of the answer is that parents do have the money because, as we know, as a society, we are uh, sitting on a mountain of cash because uh, spending went down dramatically and income stayed more or less where it was. So the checking accounts have uh, gotten uh, bigger and bigger, and parents are sitting on this mountain of cash saying, you know what, maybe I can use this money to help my kids. And that's why the average amount went up. And you kind of answered my question there, but do you see a trend as well? Is this parents that have cash or is it parents that are perhaps taking equity out of their homes to help their children? Actually, we looked at that and uh, we found that only about 5 to uh, 10% in Vancouver, the number is about 10% uh, of parents use debt to finance the gift. So most of the gift is coming actually from their savings and not uh, vis-a-vis credit. Hmm. What does this do, do you think, then, to the housing market? If, if we're seeing people that are, that are able to move up, and for them, I'm sure they're finding that, that this is good, this is what they want to do, but does it create a scenario where people are purchasing homes uh, where, and the salaries that they have or the financial state that they're in, uh, without these gifts, they wouldn't be able to be in that position? Absolutely. And that's the difference between uh, making it into the market or not. So there are a few elements here that we have to discuss. One is uh, wealth inequality. 
there is no question that uh, this is leading to a, even a wider wealth inequality, wealth gap in Canada. For a few reasons, you get the gift, which means that you can enter the housing market and then enjoy the appreciation in prices over time. If you didn't get into the market, you are not part of it. Also, the gift means that your mortgage will be smaller and therefore you're saving a lot over time on interest payments on that mortgage. So clearly, this is really widening the gap, something that we have to think about, but that's the reality. Uh, another factor is uh, to what extent uh, this is something that uh, will impact the economy as a whole and the housing market in particular. And I suggest that, yes, to an extent, the gifting phenomena is uh, adding to the price pressure in the market. And how is it doing that? Because it creates demand that otherwise wouldn't have been there. Many of those home buyers would have been renters if uh, they didn't have the gifts from their uh, parents. So at the margin, this creates the demand that leads to some sort of increase in prices down the road. It's not the most important factor impacting uh, home prices in Vancouver, but it's one of the factors. I would imagine, too, it's also having an impact as far as housing as an investment and a whole other conversation on housing as homes and housing as investment. Uh, this, this kind of blurs those lines, doesn't it, though, in that if the adult children are moving up and maybe the goal is for five or ten years to be in that in that home or that townhouse or whatever they're in, uh, the parents that are gifting, uh, could there not be a a scenario in place where they're doing that to get a double digit return that they might not get elsewhere? And in 10 years, maybe the the adult children can move on, the parents get their investment return and using the housing market that way. Well, I'm not so sure about it. I think uh, if you look at gifting, uh, giving uh, cash for down payment is one aspect of the gifting. What we see more and more, and it's not in the report, but what we see more and more is that parents are co-signing. They basically assume the debt mm. to help the kids. And another thing that we see more and more is investors, especially in the condo market in Vancouver and Toronto, uh, when we ask them, why are you investing? You're actually losing money because you are a negative cash flow. They said, listen, we do it because we want our kids, in this case, our young kids, to have a chance to still live in Vancouver or Toronto. And we are getting into the market now, knowing that 10 years from now, when my kids is um, older, the price of this condo will be much more expensive. Therefore, I want to get into the market for my kids. That's another uh, uh, you know, motivation to get into the market, something that we haven't seen in the past. Right, and is it true gifting in, in that the parents aren't expecting the money back? <laughs> I don't know, that's a good question. I really don't know. At this point, uh, the way the kids see it, it's a gift. So I don't know. <laughs> You're not getting it back anytime soon. That, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, do you see, on, on the one hand, again, just looking at this, obviously the people who are getting into the housing and upgrading would look at this as a positive thing. But how concerned should we be, like you said, that it's creating this demand that wouldn't be there otherwise and could potentially be part of the reason that housing is continuing to be so expensive? Yes, but that's only one small part of the overall story. And the big story, as you know, in Vancouver, in Toronto, there is no supply. We must, must, must deal with the supply issue. That is the number one reason why housing in Vancouver is unaffordable. We have to rethink supply and we have to make sure that there is enough supply in the market. Because if we continue this way, uh, people just doing what they have to do in order to be able to live in Vancouver. That's their right. And if they can do it, that's great, but it's not healthy. Therefore, we need to focus and deal with the source problem 
and that's supply. And when you say supply, is it any specific type of housing or what type of supply do you think would make a difference? Well, first of all, I think that we have to be much quicker in releasing land. Municipalities have to speed up the process. And I think that the, uh, you know, the federal government said that they are going to inject $4 billion into municipalities to do that. They have to think in terms of zoning, uh, adding density to the city, all kinds of things that basically will add supply because at this point we simply don't have enough. All right. Uh, interesting, interesting report. Benjamin Tal, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining the show. My pleasure. Thank you.